0: You're listening to The Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show.
1: Hello, superstars, and welcome again to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Podcast. I'm super excited of being here with you back to back in this spring break, producing some quality information for you all. And today, I have a physician, Dr. Varun Agrawal, that Actually, we connected each other about a month ago through the internet in late December, early January, when I initially launched my Facebook group and my YouTube channel and my uh, podcast. And I think he's doing a lot of good stuff for 40 medical graduates. Dr. Varuna Grawal, also known as Dr. Ed, is a nephrologist, currently working at the University Hospital in Burlington, Vermont. And he has his clinical practice of full-time nephrology. And he's heavily involved in education of graduate medical education, working with residents fellows, and obviously with medical students in this location. You can expect, for those that are non-medical, he's an internist, so he specializes in internal medicine. He did his training in uh, Royal Oak, uh, Michigan, at the William Beckman Hospital from 2005 to 2008, followed by his nephrology fellowship from July 2009 to June 2011. He is a fellow of the American College of Physicians, a fellow of the American Society of Nephrologists, and he's board-certified residency trained on those two specialties. So Dr. Ed is here with us. He's right now calling us from uh, Vermont, where he is holding the title of Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension at the University of Vermont College of Medicine. And we're super excited to have him here. He also... Has a fantastic website and a Facebook group, thousands of followers, and many of them joining on every day called ED ed4medus, ForMedUS.com that he created in the fall of 2019, and he's doing a lot of educational consultations to students, physicians. And anyone that is applying to the graduate medical education healthcare system with his 20 plus years of experience working as a professor and as an attending, working with fellows and residents, he has a lot of power in numbers and a strength to tell you how to make yourself a more robust and attractive, I would call it a sexy applicant for the residency program in the United States. So he will help you to navigate this journey. He does specific consulting, so just please visit his Facebook page and we're extremely excited to have you here today. Is there anything that I'm missing that I haven't said on in the introduction of you, Ed?
2: Oh, no, that's perfect. Thank you so much uh, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, that's accurate and um, kind of very much encompasses, you know, what I've achieved so far and uh, what I intend to do moving forward uh, for the medical graduates, both international as well as U.S. medical graduates who are, you know, looking to uh, get into a residency program here in the U.S., and I know
1: that you and I created this with a non-for-profit type of incentive initially, just because I think you and I both noted that there was a huge gap uh, for foreign medical graduates. How do you think we're filling in the need of our uh, listeners?
2: Yeah. So what happens is, uh, international medical graduates—they have, you know, quite limited knowledge of the ground reality of things here in the U.S. I mean, yes, there is the internet; there's a lot of information. But what actually is happening down here is kind of not really, you know, distilled and, you know, handed out to them unless they start, you know, really pursuing U.S. clinical experience. And what's happening and what I'm kind of looking uh, online, there are now some services or like middlemen, uh, middle people who are kind of like uh, hoping to like, you know, uh, get an international medical graduate into a U.S. clinical experience, like an observership and a, or an externship, and those are quite expensive. I mean, those costs are you know are clearly available on the websites and can kind of go up to like thousands of dollars. And so, while that is helpful, you know, besides the scores and everything. If, you know, everything can kind of like fall apart if someone doesn't do well uh, at the uh, residency interview. And so that's why I kind of chose to kind of focus very much on preparing the residency applicants to do their best in um, in the residency interviews. You know, I think what you and I are doing Alonso, is that we're kind of trying to keep this very affordable uh, for the uh, medical graduates who already have so much of a dead burden, And I really didn't feel it was ethical of me to like, you know, start charging thousands of dollars for consultation, but uh, just enough to kind of, you know, keep my passion um, in helping out others. uh, And just so that uh, we can kind of continue to develop more collaboration with other folks like you and I who want to help out uh, medical graduates.
1: Absolutely. You and I are going to try this for a few years. I think we just keep growing. Mm -hmm. So As a foreign medical grad coming into America, what kind of struggles do you go through coming into this country?
2: Yeah, so, of course, the biggest was the culture shock. I mean, you know, when I did my medical training uh, in India, things uh, were very different. The whole work culture, the work ethic. And uh, so that was like, you know, it took me some time to get used to it. For example, you know, here in the US, the work culture, um, it kind of wants you to be very independent and take on responsibilities and, you know, follow through with what you said you're going to do. And so, but that was kind of not really the ground reality uh, in India, uh, kind of growing up there. This is like a very good work ethic to have that, you know, if you're telling something, I'm going to do something, you better follow through on it. And, you know, and then other things like just working hard and uh, kind of, uh, but at the same time, trying to have like a work-life balance. So that was like, took me some time to kind of, you know, find a, a good balance between the two. Other struggles. Uh, I mean, I don't think uh, language was a problem for me uh, initially. Just getting used to the whole um uh, System, you know, social security numbers, uh, bank accounts, those kind of things, and you know, and also everyone goes through a little bit of a homesickness, you know, coming, uh, uh, you know, being far from family and everyone else. So that was a little bit of a struggle, but the good thing that helped me during the transition to residency was that I had a good network of friends and who really helped, uh, you know, helped me feel very welcome and uh, allowed me to very quickly gel with the work culture during residency. And I think uh, that was like a wonderful journey, you know, I don't know, like 15 years uh, from the time I started.
1: I know that is more likely. To have a doctor in the United States by the last name Patel than having somebody by the name Williams or Michaels you know mm-hmm. I think we represent about uh, one of every four physicians in the mm-hmm. United States are an international medical graduate okay. by the way the other day somebody posted on my Facebook page that uh, I should not be using the FMG term and actually he is correct we are right now dealing with a new term called the international medical graduate term and I just felt that for the old generation folks like you and I, yeah, it was extremely important to kind of attract that community Baptizing in my podcast, the Foreign International Medical Graduate mm-hmm. Podcast, and the international part will bring the new young fellas that I now are absorbed and connected through this new generation. So what kind of uh, population of listeners uh, you're trying to reach to? Because in general, pretty much all of my listeners have agreed uh, that you require to have someone like you or mm-hmm. me, an immigrant, to have a United States-based physician with experience on helping you through the coaching process of making it into the residency program, correct?
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that's why, you know, uh, since I started my ed4medus.com and the Facebook group, I think that's what um, the, especially the applicants who applied, you know, for the 2019-2020 uh, residency uh, match. I, I think international medical graduates were able to connect with me because I also went through the same journey, though it was many years ago. And also because I've kind of, uh, I'm a faculty member and I interact with uh, medical students, residents, also observers. Uh, so I kind of know, you know, what challenges they're going through and also served as, you know, uh, someone who did interviews uh, for residency recruitment and served in the committee to uh, develop the rank order list. So I kind of know the ins and outs of how or what program directors and faculty are looking at. So I think based on that, I think uh, I was able to connect well with especially international medical graduates and some U.S. medical graduates too, who do have an upper hand in this whole process because they are in the system, they know um, it's very quickly for them to kind of you know start get into residency they have uh, mentors and faculty advisors to help guide them uh, who are all based here in the US and none of that is available to international medical graduates
1: let's dig deeper into that and since now we have the access to these fantastic platforms like uh you know, video chatting and phone calls that you can actually feel like you're almost there with the person. The only thing that we're missing is physical touch. This has been a huge advantage and obviously it's going to change the way we interact with people. So people are reaching out to you. I know that you specialize on face interactions via uh, this media. Mm -hmm. What are the most common concerns that people reach out to you with? Uh, are these people, like, on their first attempt, they never done it, I want to get coached and trained? Or is people that already had failures, that they have failed using other methods? What kind of applicants are you getting to your uh, website and your consulting?
2: Right. I'm kind of uh, seeing, you know, uh, a spectrum of, uh, you know, residency applicants. So, you know, I've kind of interviewed folks who just came out of med school, and also I've interviewed folks who are, like, four years, five years out of med school and had to, you know either uh, were not successful in matching or had to interrupt their whole uh, residency uh, pursuit because of uh, maybe something in the family or other reasons. I see kind of all, all kind of applicants, really.
1: Wow. That's very exciting. and. When people reach out to you, they say, Dr. Uh, Ed, I want to work on my personal statement. I, I want you to help me out with what, your resume. What are you looking for to enhance? And When somebody tells you, Dr. Ed, I think I have a deficiency in this part of my resume, what's your advice? What's a typical example that you get regarding that, that, that uh, concern?
2: Right. So, one thing that I tell, you know, especially international medical graduates, and you know, uh, and I can kind of relate to that, is that uh, I believe that you know we are very modest. You know, we don't like to speak out about what we have done, what we have achieved. A lot of times, you know, if someone has like um, written a case report, then you know they will say, oh, you know, um, uh, if I ask him what's your research experience, they'll say, oh, you know, I just have a case report and. I kind of explained to them, no, that's not how you need to present yourself. You need to like, you know, there's a lot of work involved in writing a case report. So you need to kind of uh, rephrase how you're presenting all your achievements and so, you know, um, I haven't really started uh, reviewing the personal statements because I kind of started later in the year when, um, after the ERAs opened, but I hope to do it this year where I'll, I would like to work with applicants in refining their personal statements and uh, ERAs uh, resume. And one few things I would suggest uh, to applicants, again, don't be modest, don't exaggerate, but, you know, try to show the strengths of what experience you have achieved for example in a personal statement um, you know it's kind of well known that uh, you have to develop it's called a hook you know you need to develop a, a certain point that uh, the program director is going to just recognize you you know for example uh, the program director might say Oh, you're talking about the guy who has done, uh, who ran—I don't know—20 marathons, or maybe you know, you know that person who likes to do skydiving. You have to like uh, find a very, very unique uh, trait that you know program directors can relate to. For example, you know, there was uh, uh, an observer I worked with and who uh, shared me uh, the, the personal statement and uh, the way it, uh, you know it was, it was kind of nicely written but kind of very traditional, you know, hey, you know, I studied med school and I kind of got exposed to everything and now I'm here to apply for residency. And there was like just one line there. um, And so this person was from Nepal where, you know, that person, uh, so he helped out. And in then in, there was like a big earthquake, maybe a, a two years ago, or one and a half, two years ago. And so I kind of explained to him that, you know, I think that's where you should start your personal statement, because there are like so few people in this world who have kind of been through that experience you know so what did you do how did what kind of uh, things you saw you know how did people um, respond in that situation I mean it could be like a whole personal statement just based on that so uh, I think it was kind of later in the game so I don't think many changes were made but you know if someone is starting to write a personal statement I would like you know really they really need to dig deep into themselves and find something that's very unique about them so far in the situation like i gave you you know that person would talk about um all right you know this earthquake happened and um you know i was called and first i was not sure but then um you know i took it as a challenge uh to kind of you know go ahead and do this so that kind of shows you have some kind of community service uh, you know you kind of like to help other people out and then you know you worked hard um you were awake at night, helping people as best as you can. You saw a lot of emotions, a lot of emotional turmoils. You know, that's what program directors are looking for, that, you know, this is a person, a hardworking person who likes to help other people out and is well-balanced emotionally. And so all these things can come out of um, just this very unique thing that happened in your life. Now, some people might write about being a musician, say, you know, so you have to like explain to the program director, how it shaped you, you know, how it developed the skills and, okay, I want to work hard. I'm, I'm going to, I'm very patient. I like to work with other team members, just like how, that's how music uh, people become musicians. You know, they have to work with other folks. And so you have to basically show how your past experiences have made you a better physician, a very unique physician who's ready to do residency.
1: In my personal case, I, I actually, like you said, I use the hook. The hook is uh, Something attractive that obviously picks up the attention, as you just said. I use the tennis situation. I saw wow. in my interview uh, broken a broken racket, a Wilson racket behind his his head like right here and I use that as said do you play tennis Yeah, because I'm a tennis fanatic and we just went on for the exactly. 15 minutes of the interview and we really develop a connection over that and you know it's something that makes you not just a piece of paper something that connects who you are and what you want to transmit on paper but also has to show up in the interview correct?
2: Absolutely yeah you know um, and uh, I think it just shows a very unique personal side of you and that's what the personal statement is intended for it's not intended to like say again you know what your experiences are because that's what the cv tells you you know that's where when you did your residency that's what when you did this and that how is all these experiences helping you become a better physician it's kind of what you're saying like tennis or music or uh, or anything like that
1: I know you do a lot of uh, interview coaching because of your experience of interviewing residents and fellows as, as of right now. What are the most common flaws that you harpen on or work on to yeah. polish these applicants that you're working with?
2: Absolutely. So the few things uh, that, uh, you know, I wish uh, the applicants would pay a little bit more attention to, the first thing I would say is, uh, you know, I would really like the Practice to to kind of work with these applicants about two to three weeks before the actual interview. I'm not saying six months or a year, uh, but it shouldn't be like, you know, two days before the interview, I'm doing a practice interview because then it's very, very difficult to refine your answers. So, one is the timing of the interview. Then, you know, uh, some of the questions, and these are like common questions, like, you know, can you tell me an interesting case that you saw? And, you know, if the applicant is not able to come up with an answer for that, then that just shows how unprepared uh, he or she is. So uh, certainly there should be very, I would really like them to at least, you know, think through the common questions uh, that, you know, there are a lot of websites and a lot of stuff, even my blogs, uh, where we talk about common questions. And then um, things like, uh, you know, if I as interviewer, am asking the applicant, do you have any questions for me? Again, I don't think it's, um, there has to be at least one question, one question, maybe even if you've asked someone else, um, you should really have a question. And, you know, there are some challenging questions like, you know, tell me your strengths and weaknesses, that kind of a thing. Uh, the weakness is a part where, you know, people sometimes uh, um, are not able to like clearly say, uh, and that's where I help them out with. And then there are some questions like, why should we take you into our program? Uh, kind of very traditional that's question. A, that's a big
1: one. I that's think.
2: a big one. Yeah. You know, they kind of like to ask that in the end, just to kind of like summarize everything. Lately, uh, you know, from what I'm uh, reading, uh, there has been a lot of uh, interest in uh, asking behavioral questions because I think program directors know that, you know, everyone's going to be prepared to answer the very common questions like, tell me about yourself or what do you want to do after residency? But then, you know, putting that applicant in specific situation scenarios And see how they would respond in those scenarios is, I think, what the uh, program directors are looking for.
1: To clarify to our listeners, when you say behavioral questions, can you give me an example so they know what we're dealing with?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, these are questions, you know, sometimes we hear about, okay, you know, you're on call and you, you know, you have your colleague, uh, your co-resident and you smell alcohol in that person's breath or things like, uh, you know, you made a mistake in um, like, for example, you're doing a procedure, you're putting a line in and you kind of made a mistake. So what do you do in that scenario? How do you, you know, what do you tell the patient? What do you tell the family? What do you tell your attending? Those kind of scenarios are something that uh, uh, the applicants are, I think are going to be increasingly asked about.
1: One concern that I had when I came to this country was the etiquette, uh, how to dress, how to communicate, mm-hmm. how to tone down myself as a Latino, uh, avoiding the drama and the over uh, dramatic statements that we make, how to tone myself mm-hmm. to become more American like. I know that there is issues with etiquette. And you said specifically that you personally struggle with mm-hmm. the culture shock. Mm-hmm. What do you think has to happen in the applicant to change a little bit, to adapt, to be more likable by the residency program directors and the interviewers?
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's a big transition and, uh, you know, for myself, uh, kind of my personality is more of like an introvert. So it kind of, uh, you know, I, I didn't really fit well with uh, with like a more extrovert kind of uh, a setting, which, uh, you know, I understand is a more common kind of uh, personality type in the u.s work culture but then you know i tried um just try to be myself i try not to uh crack any jokes that you know might be considered offensive um and or try not to use like you know things that i might have heard in a in a movie uh um, thinking that you know people are going to understand it uh, and uh, i mean I, I think i would just try to keep it a uh, you know uh, for example, even now, you know, I'm not able to, like, tell a patient, do you get Charlie horses? You know, that's kind of not me, um, even though I hear it all the time about neuropathy and sciatica and everything. So I would say uh, just be yourself and uh, just pay close attention to what's happening around you. Uh, and uh, I try to keep a very low profile, not get into trouble. And, uh, and, I, and I think I, I did very well with that. And... Um, I think just be yourself that that's all that that's kind of the key uh, key message here
1: I think the reason why I wanted to bring you specifically during this week is because we know how important is this week for everybody yep. and what we're talking about here this is the match week mm-hmm. and with the whole coronavirus uh, craze and I think that has really detoured the concentration of many people in our community but I think uh, the match just happened. People found out on Monday that yep. if they match or not. Yep. And on Friday, they will be told exactly where they're going to go. So I know you launched your uh, uh, program ED for Met US, uh last fall, uh, during the fall. And you, this is the first time that you go through the match season. What has been so far the feedback on the success or not of most of your uh, consulting uh, individuals that you're working with?
2: Yeah. So, you know, the applicants who have matched, they have reached out to me and they've, you know, they send me thank you emails and they, um, you know, they've kind of started posting uh, reviews on my Facebook page. And uh, of course, I haven't heard from some of them and I really hope they're, they're still doing very well. If I have to guess, I think they're kind of going through the soap process which itself is you know very uh, stressful and it's a very anxious time for them you know for what i've done i just try to look up if uh, there's a lot of you know uh, discussion on twitter about people going through the soap process and some kind of an inspirational stories. so i kind of just posted one maybe today or yesterday uh just to kind of you know offer some support to the folks who are um going through uh, the soap process i wouldn't have any numbers exactly to say how many matched or not uh, you know so but you know i'm very glad to hear that uh, that some of the folks you know for example there was one person uh, he mentioned that he just had like three interviews and and really really wanted to uh, do his very best and uh, was very thankful that you know we did the practice interviews and gave him a lot of confidence to kind of perform at the interview, so I think even making a little bit of a difference and helping the applicant, I think is a wonderful thing. And uh, and of course, you know, there are limitations as to how much uh, you know as consultants we can do. Because in the end, it's the applicant who has to, you know, either uh, interview with the program director and has to uh, do it in a very common composed way and kind of go from there.
1: I know you're very active on the Internet. I'm actually remarkably impressed about the fact of how much good content and material you're posting on on daily basis, how a busy practicing physician with a busy nephrology practice running an assistant to run a residency program rounding with the fellows and residents how do you get time to do all this for people i mean i know that this is out of the goodness of your heart but where do you find time because i'm telling you the truth i find myself sometimes in, in between my kids my wife the family and work having no time to do anything i know that i'm doing it for fun but how do you do it it's awesome what you're putting out there
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, it's important to be consistent in one's efforts, Um, you know, so if I just post uh, something a month and not post for uh, uh, two months, you know, uh, people are not going to appreciate what, you know, what I can do and what I uh, how I can help others. So I kind of keep looking for content, any piece of news, you know, newsletter on Twitter or Facebook, other groups, anything that I feel is relevant to the residency applicants, and could help them out, I kind of just take that information and, you know, uh, kind of post it out there. And uh, I try to keep it like one post a day just to kind of, you know, I have like a daily content uh, for everyone. And that's working out so far, uh, working out well. And uh, yes, at times, it does look like, hey, now I'm going to run out of content. But things keep coming up. And, you know, there are a lot of news events that keep coming up. So I'm always on the lookout for something that will inform and educate the applicant.
1: Definitely, I would say that uh, what we're doing is the content is coming up from our followers. And the more you keep liking us, and the more concerns you keep sharing on the internet, on Facebook, private groups, and etc, the more it's going to help us to put some free material out there for you guys. So keep doing that. So, Dr. Ed, uh, I know that that people after you and I talking right now are going to try to get a hold of you. What is the easiest way to find you uh, on the internet or how do we connect with you?
2: So, uh, the two ways I would suggest is uh, joining my Facebook group. It's facebook.com slash groups slash ed4medus. Um, so, ed4medus slash. Um, I would highly recommend that because then you can kind of, uh, as an applicant, uh, you can get all the latest content, information, and also engage in discussions. I think that's what I'm trying to do in the group is to have people post questions and you know, hear feedback from other applicants uh, and certainly me. And the other way is my website. It's www.ed4medus.com, 4 meduscom
1: and that's all um, going to be down here at the links of my uh, uh, podcast. And also, I'm gonna, uh, it's going to be on the YouTube page. So feel free to welcome him. And I will redirect you to consult with Dr. Ed. Dr. Ed, uh, this is super exciting. So I have one question. Since uh, recently in early January, uh, uh, late January, early February, the USMLE uh, stated that we're going into a pass fail score. How do you think uh, this is going to affect uh, international medical graduates or any grad? And w- do you foresee that people are going to need to shine more in uh, the interviewing process, more than a three-digit number, as it used to be?
2: Yeah, so, um, y- you know, that whole pass-fail um, uh, the change in the, on the scoring for step one. I mean, people have looked at it both ways, you know, some feel that it, it's it's a good move. Uh, it kind of relieves some of the stress of preparing for step one and that, you know, uh, programs should not focus too much on the step one score. I mean, if you look at um, how, uh, you know, NRMP has this uh, data where they surveyed program directors asking how do you guys uh How do you um, decide whom to uh, call for an interview? And USMLE Step One score is like on the top of the list. So, um, having said that, for an international medical graduate, I think uh, you know there are a couple of ways I've kind of looked at this. The way it works for international medical graduates is uh, a lot of us take the step one, you know, much later in medical school. I mean, uh, for example, I took it like after I graduated, you know, and in the U.S., uh, it's like this they take it in the second year. The U.S. medical graduates take it in the second year of med school. So... um, And so, by the time, you know, one finishes med school, it's very difficult to kind of go back and learn, like, biochemistry and uh, anatomy and embryology, you know, those kind of... um, Basic sciences. Exactly, basic science that it's very difficult to, like, be excellent in that. And um, so, I think from that point of view, it's like, okay, you know, uh, we just need to... uh, Pass uh, in this exam, so that's one um, one uh, good thing for an international medical graduate. And focusing more on the clinical sciences, which is really the information you need to take care of the patients. Um, there, some folks have said that um, have kind of expressed their views that you know, for an international medical graduate. Um, Step having a high score on step one was kind of one of the ways uh, they would show to the program director that you know hey uh, i 'm really good at uh, in, I'm, i really 'm very good in my clinical knowledge, and so some feel that now they don't they would not have the ability to show um, the program director that um, uh, you know about uh, their uh, clinical knowledge uh, sorry the basic uh, knowledge. So, um, yes, so then, you know, the focus will be more on uh, doing better on the USMLE Step 2 CK, uh, making sure they pass the Step 2 CS, uh, the first attempt, maybe focusing more on clinical experience and research. I think uh, it's going to, like, move uh, the whole uh, method of how program directors decide whom to interview will will kind of change.
1: Practicing physician and working with a university teaching hospital. Just give me an idea of how many applicants for internal medicine you're having every year that you need to sort through, uh, just in total applications per interviewing season.
2: Yeah. So I understand that um, for every position, they're kind of interviewing about eight uh, to ten candidates for a position. So uh, here in my program, if you know, if it's like. Uh, 20, they take 20 uh, residents in a year. I have heard from the program director that they kind of interview anywhere between like 160, uh, 150, 160 applicants.
1: And probably you're going to have more than a thousand applicants per interviewing season. I heard something ridiculous like in the numbers of the three 4,000 people applying for one residency program.
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, I wouldn't know how many uh, applications were received, but yes, it's a humongous number of applications and that's why, you know, uh, there are all these filters that are placed uh, to kind of uh, narrow down you know, the number of applications that uh, the program director needs to review in order to decide whom to call for interview.
1: How likely is that with this new uh, scoring system, us foreign medical graduates are going to be able to make it into highly competitive specialties and not settle, quote unquote, for internal medicine or family practice like I had to at the very beginning before I went actually into the specialty of my show, is emergency medicine.
2: Yeah, I don't think it will change that because, you know, the reason why specialties like ophthalmology, dermatology, orthopedic surgery are competitive, it's not that because, you know, they're looking for high step one scores. Um, I mean, traditionally, um, you know, those specialties, uh, you know, are more accessible to U.S. medical graduates as compared to international medical graduates. So... And, you know, I don't believe it's entirely because of the score, uh, the step one or step two scores. I think it has to do with how you did during your med school and the kind of letters that you have, maybe the kind of research you have done. So I don't believe the pass, step one, pass, fail system is going to make it more difficult for international graduates to get into competitive specialties. You know, they would still need to work on their step two CK and, and all the other things to kind of get into a competitive specialty, I would think.
1: You said earlier that you also work with people that are doing observerships. My perception and my feeling is that every day is getting more difficult and, if not difficult, more expensive to find an observership. And definitely a hands-on rotation is really hard to get by. What are you advising the people that are successful at finding an observership to concentrate on during those two to four weeks that they're working with and attending?
2: Absolutely. You know, as an observer, um, The role is quite passive for an observer. They're basically shadowing you. They're kind of uh, looking at what you're doing. When I've had observers, um, you know, the first thing I would ask them is, you know, if they have any. topics or any questions that they would like me to discuss, you know, just to kind of have an engaging um, teaching moment. And, you know, there were some observers who would like me to talk about dialysis or some electrolyte disturbance. Some were like, "Mm, no, they didn't have anything to ask me. And so that again, you know, that's so I would really highly encourage an observer to have some questions to ask the attending, or at least, you know, if the attending is showing an interest in teaching that you take full, you know, uh, benefit of that. There's a lot of downtime, you know, they, they need to wait for the attendings to like write their notes and everything. I would suggest an observer to ask the attending to see, hey, you know, I know we saw this patient, um, you know, uh, is there anything that you want me to research, do a literature search about? For example, you know, I wrote in one of my blogs, so we had like two, um, observers. And uh, there was this whole question about polycystic kidney disease. And there's this medicine called Tolbaptin. And so when he asked me, hey, you know, do you have something that you would like me to research on? So I would like, you know, think back about a little bit of a literature search on this thing, but I just didn't get time. So I kind of, all the observer to look at the literature and the guidelines as to uh, what's the benefit of using Tolvaptin in polycystic kidney disease, and that observer did an amazing job uh, putting all the information together. I would highly recommend observers to do as many presentations as they can. Again, uh, you know, evidence-based medicine. So you know, some again uh, f- you know feel again modest or shy about doing this, but I would highly encourage them not to do that because. We all know that observers are coming for getting letters of support. So the more uh, excitement and energy you can show in your, in your observership, it's all going to reflect in the letter. So, you know, do try to present at least one topic uh, every week to the entire division. Um, if you can, or certainly your teaching, attending, who's with you, just make sure you can present something on PowerPoint every week. Of course they are allowed to review charts. Um, they cannot notes. Um, so do ask, you know, if there's a question that comes up on rounds, do ask them. And if or do take the effort to, um, you know, search on up to date, search on the literature and, and say to the attending, hey, you know, I read about this medicine is kind of contraindicated in people with acute kidney injury, what are your thoughts about that? For example, I had someone with taking baclofen and who had acute kidney injury. So there was this whole discussion about it. So I think there's a lot of content that can be uh, seen uh, during an observership. It's just that they need to capitalize on that. They need to like say, okay, this is an opportunity. I can can help the attending uh, in their literature search or put together a PowerPoint and go from there. Some observers, you know, do help out. They also do look for research opportunities. I mean, it's possible to do any research in four weeks. But, you know, at least you might be able to identify a mentor um, and see if you would be, you know, they need help writing a paper or a review paper or something that you can do remotely also. So those are a few things. Uh, I highly discourage, um, you know, observers to, like, you know, be chatting on their phones while waiting. It's kind of no, not very respectful to do that. There, If nothing much is happening, they should just, you know, I go to the library or read something or do some research um, and kind of go from there. This is
1: awesome material that you have suggested to us. So I'm going to just change the topic really quick. Yeah. Right now with this crisis of the COVID-19 and coronavirus, how this is affecting your private individual practice and what's the environment in your clinic and in the hospital right now with yeah. this craziness and, and how much of an involvement they're asking you to, to play on, on this uh, pandemic?
2: Exactly. So, you know, as a nephrologist, I'm the medical director of a dialysis unit, so it gets even more complex in someone who is a person... uh who needs dialysis and might be COVID-19 positive because of some of the respiratory symptoms. And so, you know, I've kind of just been working with the management um, to try and come up with, you know, how are we going to isolate them? What are we going to do? And work with infectious disease. I was on call yesterday night and, you know, we kind of just had a, a very similar situation. And, you know, kind of all non-essential, like the clinics are kind of, you know, uh, just like telemedicine or phone, uh, you know, interviews are are being done right now. So, all like non-essential or things that can wait are being rescheduled to a later date. And, you know, with regards to the teaching, everything's kind of become remote right now. Um, You know, medical students are not like, you know, are in sitting together or so, you know, in, in a lecture hall. And observership also, that's kind of like, you know, uh, closed now because, again, you know, we don't want uh, observers to kind of be in a dialysis unit, with, uh, you know, where they can potentially get sick. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so all kind of things that are non-essential have really been like, you know, cut down.
1: Well, it's been awesome. I just wanted to get your point of view on what's been this experience yeah. because we our two prior episodes are going to be about COVID-19 and, and I think uh, we need to take advantage of this moment to generate some public health education to kind of calm the fears and at least to tell people to stay home and isolate themselves. Dr. Ed, Dr. Varuna Grawal, this has been fantastic. Uh, I'm going to link you guys so you can visit him. If you want to get a hold of Dr. Ed, I would say this is the moment so we can start planning ahead for the future for the next uh, matching season. As he said, usually he's going to be really busy for the two to three weeks prior to any interview that you're going to have. And for all those uh, residents that match, I um those, those medical students that match, I want to congratulate you and wish you good luck in the next three to five years of your education. And, and Dr. Ed is here for you. He's doing some fantastic stuff and he's putting some good material out there. So just follow him on his Facebook page. And I just hope that business is growing and foreign medical and international medical graduates are extremely appreciative of your job, especially knowing that you're such a busy physician.
2: Yeah, sounds good. Thank you very much, Dr. Alonso. Really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Thank you.
1: So for everybody, please uh, remember to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and visit my webpage. I have plentiful of good information. I have a couple of episodes that just came out actually today regarding COVID-19, and I think you're going to like it. We're going to resume our educational lectures on this uh, matter of getting involved for medical graduates. Tomorrow, we have a special host. Dr. Giselle Melendez that is going to tell us more about uh, research and how to do research in the United States. She's an extremely involved physician MD that is working at uh, one of the most prominent universities in the United States doing some significant research with primates as well. So we're going to find more about this tomorrow. So just keep an eye on that and download, subscribe and share because remember, sharing is caring. Dr. Ed, thank you for being here. Thank you for participating. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank
2: you very much. Have a great day. Yeah, you too.